0: It is a blessing to gather together with God's people uh, any day of the week, uh, especially on the Lord's Day as we do, uh, to worship uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and receive from Him of His fullness. And to that end, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 22, Uh, Revelation chapter uh, 22. Uh, We're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation, and as we continue in our study of this book, we come to Revelation 22, verse 6, and my goal this morning is to cover uh, verses uh, 6 through 13, and the title of the message is Responding to Revelation. Responding to Revelation. If there's one thing that you can know for sure about the book of Revelation It's that no one can read it and be unaffected by it. Ultimately, any reader of the book of Revelation will either be left with a harder heart that is more bent on evil, or they will be left with a softer heart that is more devoted to Jesus Christ. It's going to be one of those two responses. And thankfully, uh, what we have in our passage today that we're going to be looking at is an attempt by the Holy Spirit to actually shape our response to the book of Revelation and to shape our response toward the blessedness of greater devotion to Jesus Christ. As we've studied the book of Revelation Over, I think, the last 17 months now, we have seen uh, the vision of Christ in chapter 1. We have read Jesus' messages to the seven churches of Asia Minor in chapters 2 and 3. In Revelation 4 and 5, we saw the throne of God in heaven and the presentation of the Lamb, who is shown to be worthy to take the book of human destiny and break its seals. In Revelation 6 through 18, we witness the Lamb breaking the seals of judgment, which then unleash the seven trumpets upon the world, followed by the seven bowls of God's wrath poured out upon the inhabitants of the earth, who stubbornly, even in the face of this onslaught of judgment, refuse to repent of their wickedness and give glory to God. In Revelation 19, we saw how the Lord Jesus Christ will come from heaven to earth at his second coming and defeat the Antichrist and his armies and then bind Satan for a thousand years. In chapter 20, we saw how Christ will establish his reign upon the earth and then reign for that thousand years. At the end of that thousand years, Satan, we have learned, will be Set free and will lead a final rebellion against Christ and his people. But we saw how God will defeat them all and then cast Satan once and for all into the lake of fire. We then saw the great white throne, judgment of God, where God will judge all of the unrepentant wicked according to their deeds and cast them into the lake of fire. And then finally, in chapter 21, we see the creations of the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. We see unfolding the beginning of that chapter, a new reality in which there is no more death, no more sorrow, pain, or evil of any sort. We saw how one of the angels bearing the balls of God's wrath Earlier in Revelation, took John, the apostle, to a great and a high mountain to show him the new Jerusalem. And John described for us the wonderful features of this amazing eternal city, not the least of which is that the throne of God and the Lamb will be in this city where God's people will experience his blessings in the eternal state forever and ever. That's what we've studied so far over the last year and a half. The question is, how should we respond to all that we have been exposed to as we have studied through the book of Revelation? What should our response be to this book? Last February, the atheist Bill Maher gave his response to the book of Revelation on his TV program. He spoke to Christians and said, and I quote, have you ever read the book of Revelations? They've got stuff in that book you only see after the guy in the park sells you bad mushrooms. That's his response to Revelation. Bart Ehrman is a Christ-rejecting scholar who has spent Time reading the book of Revelation from beginning to end in the original Greek. He studiously took notes and jotted down his observations as he read through the entirety of the book of Revelation. He likely has spent more time in the book of Revelation than any of us in this room have spent. Coming forth from as many hours of reading and studying, The book of Revelation, he began publishing his thoughts in August of last year, and among his comments on the book of Revelation, he said the following, and I quote, I have come to realize that I do not revere, respect, or even like this book anymore. I think it is a horrible depiction of God, portraying him as a ruthless tyrant who absolutely detest anyone who does not worship him with all their heart and soul, who wants not just to crush all opposition, but to torture everyone who does not believe in Jesus. Speaking about the viewpoint of the writer of the book of Revelation, Bart Ehrman says his view is not only dangerous socially and politically, It is the opposite of the teaching of Jesus. So this is how Bill Maher and Bart Ehrman respond to the book of Revelation, and we're actually going to see, even this morning, that the book of Revelation is actually designed by God to provoke this kind of response from the wicked. But what is your response to the book of Revelation? How should we respond to this book? Well, the Holy Spirit wonderfully seeks to shape our response in verses 6 through 13 of Revelation 22. And as we study this passage this morning, we're going to observe seven responses that we should have. Seven responses that we should have to all that we have read in the book of Revelation thus far. Number one. Number one, we should view the words of Revelation as faithful and true. We should view the words of Revelation as faithful and true. Observe what John says in verse 6. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. These words refer to everything that the angel said to John about the new Jerusalem in recent verses, but they should also be understood to include all of the words spoken to John throughout the entirety of the book of Revelation. Regarding all of these amazing words that have been revealed to John and spoken to him, the angel says to John, these words are faithful and true. This assurance partly needs to be said for John's benefit due to the wonderful nature of everything that he has been seeing and hearing. John's heart is right now, no doubt, filled with wonder, asking, "This is just thinking, this is all so wonderful and good. Can it really be true, or am I just dreaming these things? And to that part of him that may be feeling this way, the angel says to John, These words are faithful and true. But this angel is speaking these words to John for our benefit also. If we harbor any doubts in our hearts about the contents of Revelation, this angel is wanting to assure us that the words of Revelation are faithful and true. The word faithful speaks of the absolute reliability of these words words. And true speaks of the truthfulness of the words that have been spoken. Nothing that has been said to John in these 22 chapters is an inadvertent mistake. Nothing that has been revealed to John is a lie. Every prophecy and every promise that John has heard is absolutely faithful and true and will come to pass exactly as John Has been told and has written down. There are many books nowadays and news outlets and blogs, even by Christian people speaking a whole lot of words today. And we, don't we not, have to sift through all of that in the hopes of figuring out what is faithful and true? But wonderfully, here this angel is telling John and us that everything said in this book is faithful and true, and we should respond to the book of Revelation by believing this to be so. But we should go beyond doing just this, which leads us to the second way that we should respond to all that we have read in the book of Revelation Let's word it this way, number two, we should view Revelation's prophecies as God's revelation of a necessary future. We should view Revelation's prophecies as God's revelation of a necessary future. As this angel continues speaking to John, he says in verse 6, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bond servants the things which must soon take place. Notice how God is described here. He is described as the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets. The spirits of the prophets are the very spirit or soul's of the prophets themselves, which were in tune with God and submitted to him and receiving revelation from him. God governed their spirits and carried them along in the direction that he would have them go such that they would speak divinely inspired revelation from him. And this angel is speaking to John right now and is saying that this God of all the prophets of the Old Testament and the prophets of the New Testament all the way up to John has sent his angel to reveal all that has been revealed to John in this book in order that through John God might show his bondservants or his slaves, the text says, things which must soon take place. By the way, the angel that is spoken about here is the angel that John mentions all the way back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, where John introduces the book of Revelation by saying, listen to these words, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. Angels, as you will recall, show up all over the place in the book of Revelation, but there does seem to have been one particular angel who was the primary facilitator of all of the revelation that God has been imparting to John in ways that aren't always explained in this book. And according to verse 6 here, the purpose of this main messenger angel was to show to God's bond servants the things which must soon take place. This means that if you are a believer in Jesus and you're a servant of God, God inspired this book of Revelation for your benefit because God wants you to know the things that will take place soon. Notice here in verse 6 the word must. The purpose of the book of Revelation is not merely to show the things that will take place, although that is true, but to show the things which must take place. In other words, the things which simply must happen by divine moral necessity in God's predestined plan for the ages. Ultimately, what the words of this angel communicate to us is that we should respond to the book of Revelation by understanding that this book is from God, that it reveals the future, and that it reveals the sovereign plan of God regarding the things that simply must, of necessity, take place in God's predetermined plan. As history comes to its culmination in God's plan, and on his timetable. Tied to responding to the book of Revelation in this way, there's yet another way that we should respond to what we have read and learned from the book of Revelation. Let's word it this way. Number three, we should know that Jesus is coming. We should know that Jesus is coming with blessing for those who give heed to Revelation. We should know that Jesus is coming with blessing for those who give heed to this book. At this point, the speaker is no longer the angel, but Jesus speaking. And listen to what Jesus says in verse 7. He says, And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. When we read this promise of Jesus saying, Behold, I am coming quickly, let's spend a minute or two here. Our first thought might be, how can this promise for Jesus to come quickly be true when Jesus still hasn't come for 2,000 years since this promise was spoken? We know that the coming that Jesus is speaking about here is primarily centered upon his second coming that John described for us back in Revelation chapter 19, and we know that almost 2,000 years have gone by, and this second coming still has not happened. So what do we do with that and with the promise of Jesus to come quickly? Well, in the first place, we should realize that our perception of the passage of time is very different from God's to us 2000 years seems like anything but quick but we learn in second peter chapter 3 verse 8 that a thousand years with the lord is as what one day but also notice here that jesus is not simply promising to come in a future day Literally, he's saying, I am coming, present tense, meaning that the process of his coming has already started in the sense that he is superintending over history and causing events to play out in a way that will culminate in his visible appearance on earth. Think about it this way. Think of the passage of time and the unfolding of human history on the world stage as the procession of a parade. And Jesus is the approaching king at the end of that parade. With that image in mind, we can know that every day that passes and every event that happens on the world stage brings us one day closer to the appearing of the king who is coming. Jesus is coming, all right. In fact, he's already started his approach, as it were. Events, we can know, are happening right now that are leading to that great moment when Jesus splits the sky and appears at his second coming, And when he does come, his coming, he says here, will happen quickly. Jesus will rapture the church without warning. The events of the tribulation will unfold thereafter as his wrath descends upon the earth. And his second coming will happen so quickly that his enemies will not know what hit them. Write down this reference, Matthew Twenty four, twenty seven. Jesus himself says, and I quote, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. How's that for speed? By the way, I just read this week that back in April of 2020, the National Weather Service observed a lightning bolt along the Gulf Coast that was literally 477 miles long. Imagine that. That's a lightning bolt as long as the distance from Los Angeles to Tucson, lighting up the sky with a suddenness that no one could prepare for. Imagine the power of that. And that's the way Jesus' second coming will be. His coming will be as quick as lightning and as powerful too. And notice how Jesus words this promise in the context of a command. He says here, behold, I am coming quickly. This word behold derives from a command that means to look or to see. Essentially, Jesus is telling us that he wants us to see right now the truth that he is coming. While the world is oblivious to this looming reality of the coming of Jesus, Jesus wants us to be in on this secret and to see him approaching with the eyes of our heart. In the second part of verse 7, Jesus says, Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. To give heed to the book of Revelation is to believe it to be true, to believe it is from God, to keep it in one's heart, and to live a life that is consistent with the expectation that all of these things truly will come to pass. To give heed to the prophetic words of Revelation is to live as one who knows that God will judge the unrepentant wicked and to live as one who knows that God is in control of history as it unfolds even today and to live as one who knows that one day God will remove all evil and sorrow and death and dwell with his people forever in the new Jerusalem. Blessed is such a one, Jesus says, who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. There's some people who, who brush off the book of Revelation as too confusing to be worthy of their time. And sometimes, sadly, even Christians can do this. But this is the only book of the Bible that comes with a blessing like this, where Jesus pronounces a blessing on those who give heed to its words and allow it to shape their lives. There's a fourth way that we should respond to what we have read and learned in the book of Revelation so far. Number four, we should worship God, not his messengers. We should worship God, not his messengers. At this point of the narrative, something truly astounding happens beginning in verse 8. Observe what John confesses to us in verse 8. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. John has heard all that his tour guide angel has said to him He has seen everything that this angel has directed him to see, and John is so overwhelmed at this point that he says, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Back in chapter 19, you will recall, we saw John falling at the feet of an angel who showed him the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we saw how that angel admonished him and said, don't do that. Worship God. And now here, John, even after that rebuke and redirection back in chapter 19, is falling once again at the feet of yet another angel. And we don't really have to speculate as to why. He tells us, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel Who showed me these things? John is so overwhelmed by the glories of what he has seen regarding the New Jerusalem and the eternal state. And he's so grateful to this angel for showing him these wonderful things that he gets carried away and falls at this angel's feet to worship the angel. This is the great Apostle John who walked with Jesus for three years when Jesus was on the earth. This is the Apostle John, the great church leader who has led the church and walked with God for many decades now. This is John who has now been the recipient of the most amazing revelations ever granted to a human being. And what does he do? He wrongly responds to God's revelation by worshiping the angel that God used to show him these things. If anything reveals how intractable our tendency towards idolatry is, it is this. What John is doing here, if he were here, he would say, I was wrong. This is a wrong response to revelation. Observe how this angel responds in verse 9. John says, but he, the angel, said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God, he says. Do not do that, the angel says to John. And then he reminds John of what he is. He's like, I'm just a fellow slave of you, John, and of all of God's prophets who have spoken throughout history. And he says that he's not simply the fellow slave of John and God's prophets, but he's also a fellow slave of those who heed the words of this book. So if you are a believer in Jesus who gives obedient heed to the contents of the book of Revelation, then this angel considers himself to be a fellow slave serving together alongside of you. By the way, there is mercy in this angel's words to John if you have the eyes to see it. Here is John in a moment of mistaken worship, a man erring greatly who needs to be rebuked and redirected, and this angel wonderfully still refers to himself as John's fellow slave, meaning that he still views John as a servant of God, and he still views himself as John's partner, even though John is erring in this way. I am so grateful that God and his angels do not cast us off as believers in our moments of sin, aren't you? But John does need to be redirected here towards the right response to the book of Revelation. And the angel gives him that redirection saying, worship God. He's telling John that worshiping God is the proper response to all that he has seen and heard. He's saying to John, don't worship me. I'm just the messenger. Fall at God's feet and worship him. He is the one who sent me to you to give you this message. And he is the one who will bring about all the glories that I and the other angels have shown to you. This little episode here in these verses shows you and me that the right way to respond to all that we have seen in Revelation is not to worship the angelic messengers who revealed this book to John, nor is the right response for us to worship John, who is God's messenger to us, nor is the right response... For us to idolize any preacher who serves as a messenger of this book to us. But to worship God and to bow before God and to fall at God's feet. To prostrate ourselves before him in humble worship and praise. And to put ourselves at his mercy in a posture of surrender before him, and to give him all of the glory. And John is saying, this is the right response to revelation and learn from my mistake. All of that said, I'm, I'm deeply touched by this portrayal of John's humanity. I feel a little less alone in my own struggles when I see here that an elderly godly apostle of Jesus Christ, finds himself still going sideways and having to confront his sinful tendencies toward idolatry. I am blessed by John's transparency in including this episode in this book so that we all would know of his failure and what he learned from it. I am blessed to see that John is evidently So confident in his relationship with God that he's not worried about what you or I might think of him. All he cares about is that God be glorified, even if his own reputation takes a hit in the process. And John so badly wants us to hear the same command that he has now heard for a second time in the last three chapters, and that is worship God. He wants us to know that this is the proper response to all that we have seen in this book, to fall at God's feet and to worship Him alone and to give our worship to no one or nothing else. There's a fifth way that we should respond to what we have read and learned from the book of Revelation. Number five, we should seek to understand and broadcast Revelation's contents. We should seek to understand and broadcast Revelation's contents. Observe what John says in verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. This instruction to John is actually the exact opposite of the instruction that was given to Daniel centuries earlier. Daniel received some amazing revelations from God regarding the future. But in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, the angel spoke to Daniel and said, But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. But here in verse 10 of Revelation, 22, this angel tells John not to seal up the words of the prophecy contained in Revelation. Back in Revelation chapter 10, verse 4, you will recall how John heard uh, what the seven peals of thunder said, and he was about to write down what he heard the thunder saying when he then heard a voice from heaven saying in Revelation 10.4, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. So clearly from Revelation 10.4, for John to seal up what the lightning said was to keep it secret from us. So for this angel here, In our passage today to tell John not to seal up the prophecy of the book of Revelation means to do the opposite of keeping it a secret. Essentially, this angel is telling John to publish this book and to make it open and accessible to the church in the first century and to the church of every generation since so that Christians in every age can read this book and see for themselves what is revealed regarding the future and what is revealed about Christ. This includes you and me. God wanted you and me today in 2022 to be able to see what John saw and to be blessed by it. And so he told John, don't seal this up, don't keep it secret, publish it, and make it available to the church. And then beyond that, God doesn't want us to simply study the book of Revelation and then seal up its contents in our own hearts. He wants us to study this book and to keep it ever open before us, as it were, and to broadcast its message the world so that others might know of the things that are prophesied in this book and perhaps be drawn to Christ. What reason does this angel give as to why John should not seal up the prophecy of Revelation? At the end of verse 10, the angel says, for the time is near. For the time is near. In other words, the time of fulfillment is near. And the truth is that the fulfillment of these things was as near to the Christians in the first century as it is to us today in the sense that these things have always been poised and ready to break in upon the world at any moment. The future that is prophesied in the book of Revelation does not sit at the end of a lengthy timeline. But even now, these things are just behind the curtain, ready to break in upon the world. And one day, when we do experience the fulfillment of all of these things, we will realize how near these things were to us all along. And if the fulfillment of these things are so near to us even now, we as Christians ought to be feeling the gravitational pull of these things already. As Daniel Aiken says, Christ could return at any moment. Eternity is drawing closer. For all of us, it is only a heartbeat away We dare not silence the word of God by disobedience, indifference, laziness, or neglect. We must preach it and teach it continually and faithfully. For a time is coming when the opportunity to respond to the gospel and the word of God will be no more. There's a sixth way that we should respond to what we have read and learned from the book of Revelation. Number six, we should know that Jesus is coming with judgment for the wicked and the righteous. We should know that Jesus is coming with judgment for the wicked and the righteous. Listen to what this angel says to John in verse 11 and pay very close attention to the counsel that this angel gives. Verse 11. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. These words of counsel from the angel are both startling and, in my opinion, haunting and ought to make the hair on the back of our neck stand up. It makes perfect sense to all of us in this room that this angel would say at the end of verse 11, let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. But the counsel at the beginning of the verse falls strangely on our ears, does it not? The angel says, let the one who does wrong still do wrong and the one who is filthy still be filthy and all God's people said (laughs) seriously what kind of counsel is this the basic vibe of what is being said in the first half of this verse is this if you are committed to doing wrong and being spiritually filthy, then go ahead and be what you are. You do you, while the righteous and the holy will pursue righteousness and holiness, and everyone will see what comes of both of these paths when Christ comes. As unusual as the language at the beginning of verse 11 is, we do find it elsewhere in the Bible. We have similar language in Ezekiel 3.27 where God tells Ezekiel to say to the people, listen to this, he who hears, let him hear, and he who refuses, let him refuse. In Hosea 4.17, God speaks of the northern kingdom of Israel and says, and I quote, Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave them alone. In Matthew 15, 14, Jesus talks about the Pharisees and says to his disciples, let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. In John 13, verse 27, Jesus speaks to Judas after Satan had filled Judas's heart and he said to Judas, "What you do, do quickly." This is literally Jesus handing Judas over to the evil of his own heart and telling him, "Judas, you do you." We see the same thing illustrated in Romans 1 where God three times is said to hand over the wicked to the wickedness of their own hearts. So the instructions of verse 11 in the first half of this verse are chilling words that the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. Does this mean that God does not want such persons to repent? No, it doesn't mean that. Throughout Revelation, we have seen multiple calls to repentance. But there comes a point in every unrepentant sinner's life when God hands them over to the evil of their hearts and essentially says to them what Jesus says to Judas, what you do, do. I release you to do the evil that you are bent on doing, and I won't restrain you. And that's the message here. The angel is saying, let the one who is unrighteous go ahead and keep doing unrighteousness. And the one who is filthy, still be filthy. I have to confess to you that this instruction sends chills down my spine when I imagine these words being spoken to me. It would be a terrible thing for me to ever hear these words from an angel or from Jesus being spoken directly to me. And what makes these words so heavy on my own heart is that they're exactly what I know that I deserve for God to have said to me. I can think of many moments in my life when I loved my sin, pursued my sin, when God could have rightly said to me, Milton, you are bent on unrighteousness. Go ahead. I'm going to hand you over And let you be as unrighteous and filthy as you want to be. Yet by the sheer grace of God, God looked upon me in mercy when I was unrighteous and I was filthy. And he called me to himself and put faith in my heart and saved me and said, I make you righteous through my atoning blood, and I give you my power to begin to walk in holiness. I will save you from you through Jesus Christ. What did I ever do to deserve this amazing grace that God would speak better things to me than what he says here in the first half of verse 11? And in my moments of sin, even since Becoming a believer in Jesus, when God has seen me going sideways and bowing before different idols, he pursued me and he lovingly rebuked me as the angel did to John and drew me to himself once again. Guys, this is crazy grace. The first half of verse 11 is what we all deserve to hear But so many of us in this room who have believed in Jesus have heard better things than this. For those of you who are saved, read the counsel of the first half of verse 11 and be grateful that God in his sovereign, infinite mercy did not speak to you in this way. And appreciating this, follow the counsel of the latter part of the verse where the angel says, and let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. This is the proper way to respond to all that you have read and learned in the book of Revelation thus far. Actually, we best understand the angel's counsel in verse 11 when we realize that his counsel in verse 11 is connected to what Jesus says next in verse 12, where Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Most commentators would say that it's the angel speaking in verse 11, and then Jesus kind of interjects. And if Jesus ever wants to interrupt any of us, he gets permission to do that, right? And so he speaks here, says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. And putting verse 11 and 12 together, essentially the message is this. Let the unrighteous keep on being unrighteous, and let the righteous keep on being righteous. And both will see soon enough What results from the choices that they have made. Behold, I am coming quickly and will reward both the unrighteous and the righteous according to what they have done. My judgment will not be arbitrary, but will be perfectly according to what each person has actually done. This promise from Jesus teaches us that it really is true that all roads do lead to Jesus. The path of the righteous will lead them to Christ to be rewarded by him at the judgment. And the path of the sinner who lives his life running from Jesus is merely following a path that will one day lead him right to Jesus at the judgment where they will be judged for their sins. Everyone will stand before Christ and confess him as Lord and be judged by him. And for the believer, this means that when we stand before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ, he will reward us for all the good that we were able to do with the serving grace that he had given to us. For the unrighteous, Christ will judge them to eternal perdition, consistent with the evil that they have done. And their worst evil of all is that they rejected him and refused to believe in him. And the way we ought to respond to all of this is to pursue righteousness and pursue holiness and to help others to do the same, knowing that we will stand before Christ at the judgment and be rewarded based on the good that we were able to do as believers with the grace that God gave us. This doesn't mean in any way that we're going to be saved by our good works, but it does mean that we will, as believers, receive heavenly reward consistent with the works that we did with the strength that Christ gave us. There's a final way that we should respond to what we have read and learned from the book of Revelation. And that is, we should look to Jesus as the Lord of history. We should look to Jesus as the Lord of history. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 13. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Look at me, he's saying, this is who I am. This is how I want you to respond to all that you have learned throughout this book. As we pointed out before, Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and omega is the final letter of the Greek alphabet. So in our language today, Jesus is saying, I am the A and the Z and everything in between. And speaking of himself as the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, Jesus is saying that he was around before anything else came into existence He is the beginning of all things, the one who started it all. And he is also saying that he will outlast all things that will die out. He is also saying that his sovereign plan prevails all the way from A to Z and will culminate in his glory. We right now find ourselves in the year 2022. I don't know where we are in the alphabet of history A couple weeks ago, a group of atomic scientists controlling the doomsday clock put the world at 100 seconds to midnight. In their minds, if you look at all of human history as a 12-hour period, we are 100 seconds away from doomsday. But who knows, thinking of the alphabet, we may right now be at the letter G. Or we may be at X or Y. What we can know is that we're heading to Z, and the Z is Christ. He is the beginning of history, and he is the end. All things came from him, and everything will lead to him. As some writers have said, history doesn't end merely with an event, but it ends with a person. And that person is Jesus. The kind of language that Jesus uses in this verse is Old Testament language reserved for God alone. Write down the reference, Isaiah 44 6, where God says, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. And Revelation 1 8, and Revelation 21, 6, God describes himself as the Alpha and the Omega. In fact, in Revelation 21, 6, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And here, Jesus is describing himself in exactly the same way, clearly claiming to be God. And Jesus speaks this way to John because he wants John and he wants us to look to him as the Lord of history. With all that we have read in the book of Revelation so far regarding the things to come, which will bring history to its culmination, Jesus wants us to respond to all of that by turning our eyes upon him as the Lord of it all and the whole point of it all. Jesus is saying to us, if you want to know the A to Z of history, it's me. If you want to know the beginning to the end of history, it's me. If you want to understand history from the first to the last, it's me. If you understand and know me, Jesus says, you have your starting point and ending point for understanding all of human history. If you don't know me, Jesus is saying, then you will never understand the past. You will never understand the present, and you will never understand the future as you ought. You will never understand, even begin to understand, the unfolding of the human drama until you know me, Jesus says. And more than anything else, Jesus wants all that you and I have read and encountered in the book of Revelation thus far to bring us to a place of looking to him and knowing him in this way. Will you do that? We're going to stop here for today. I just want to say that, you know, my prayer as um, we've studied through Revelation is for God to change me through this book. The more I've come to know the book of Revelation and personally experienced the power of it, the more I've realized that if this book, (laughs) if this book doesn't change me, I don't think anything will. And my prayer right now coming toward the end of this series is, God, please don't let me get through this book unchanged. And I'm thankful for a passage like what we've looked at today, where God makes it so clear what he wants this book to do in me, And you giving us so many ways that God wants us to positively respond to what we've encountered in this book. But coming forth from this text that we've seen today. Is also the haunting refrain. Let the one who does wrong. Still do wrong. And let the one who is filthy still be filthy. You see, God knows that this book is going to affect you in one of two ways. As John MacArthur says, preaching revelation draws the line. Its truths will melt the hearts of the repentant and harden the hearts of the unrepentant. Its truths thus become either an instrument of salvation or an instrument of damnation. Which will it be for you? I pray that you will be among the blessed ones whose heart is made soft by this book, that you will be among the blessed ones who look to Jesus as your alpha and Omega, and that you will be among the blessed ones who gives proper heed to this book and believes in him. Let's pray together. Lord, you are a good God to give us a book like this with all the revelation that is contained in this book. And you are good to coach us in a passage like this saying, here's how to respond. Lord, I'm not naive. There are some in this building within the sound of my voice who are unrepentantly unrighteous and filthy. And they will go on being unrighteous and filthy. In fact, they're even more confirmed and hardened in that path because of this very sermon. But I pray, Lord, that you would look upon all of us in this room with your great mercy. Touch many hearts, including mine, and that our hearts would feel the gravitational pull of the the gravitas of Jesus, and that we will give proper heed to what's been revealed. And be among the blessed for time and eternity. If there's anyone here today, Lord, who has never looked to you, Lord Jesus, for salvation, speak. Speak good things to their heart. That they would hear Jesus speak of the blessedness of those who give heed and that they would give heed and repent of their sins and run to Jesus, knowing that this Jesus says that anyone who comes to me, I will not, I will not, I will not cast them out, but will be delighted to save them. And may they run to you and fall at your feet believe in you as their Lord and Savior and experience the salvation that you would be delighted to give to them this morning. And do your full good work in all of our hearts, Lord. We ask all of these things in the precious and mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.